Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present David Gibbs, professor of history at the University of Arizona, who explains why he believes that NATO's eastward expansion is key to understanding rising tensions and the threat of war along Ukraine's border with Russia. Kevin Gastola, of the news website shadowproof.com, who discusses the threat to press freedom in London's high court ruling permitting WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to be extradited to the U.S. to stand trial on espionage charges. And Kennery Webb, founder of the group Health and Harmony in Borneo, Indonesia, who talks about her collaboration with local people, connecting the issues of human health and environmental health to protect the region's rainforests. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Rohingya refugees forced to flee Myanmar have sued Facebook's parent company, Meta Platforms, in a class action suit filed in California. It seeks $150 billion in damages, claiming the social media giant failed to take effective action against anti-Rohingya hate speech, which they claim led to anti-Muslim violence and over 10,000 deaths in 2017. Facebook launched their Burmese service in Myanmar over a decade ago. The class action lawsuit claims Facebook contributed to the widespread distribution of anti-Rohingya hate speech and charges that the social media platform enabled the Myanmar army to run a campaign of ethnic cleansing against the Rohingya minority. After the army launched its bloody ethnic crackdown, over 730,000 Rohingya fled to neighboring Bangladesh. The International Criminal Court has opened an inquiry into the atrocities. Facebook claims it's protected by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which states that online platforms are not responsible for content posted by third parties. In mid-November, IQ Air, a global environmental think tank, rated the city of Lahore, the cultural center of Pakistan, the most polluted place on Earth as smog engulfs the city and forces the shutdown of schools, roads, and businesses. Lahore, a city of 13 million, beat out New Delhi, India, as the epicenter of toxic air pollution. According to Foreign Policy magazine, Punjab is home to five of the top 50 most polluted cities in the world. In Lahore, fine particulate matter was measured at 40 times the safe level calculated by the World Health Organization. Long-term exposure can lead to asthma, lung damage, bronchial infections, and heart disease. Health authorities in Lahore blame Indian farmers for the increase in smog, where many are burning seasonal crop waste. Officials thus far have offered only Band-Aid solutions, ignoring the impact of new economic development and the pollution that comes with it. Global warming is rapidly transforming weather in the Arctic, as rain may overtake snow during certain seasons in the frozen north by the year 2060 or 2070. The new research published in the journal Nature found that Arctic ice that melts more rapidly could increase the pace of sea level rise along the world's coastlines. 
At the same time, melting permafrost could release massive amounts of planet-heating gases such as methane and carbon dioxide. The greening of once-frozen landscapes could also provide fuel for ravenous wildfires that spew more greenhouse gases into the air and further warm the atmosphere. Climate researchers expect the switchover to rain in the Arctic to happen one to two decades earlier than previously predicted. Marilena Altmans, a climate researcher with the United Kingdom's National Oceanography Center, argued that world leaders need to pursue the most ambitious aim of the Paris Climate Accord, which is to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels because exceeding this warming threshold can lead to irreversible damage to our planet. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. News reports around the world warn that the current buildup of Russian troops and military equipment along Ukraine's eastern border with Russia could be a prelude to a dangerous new Russian invasion of Ukraine. The report cite an estimated 100,000 Russian soldiers deployed on Ukraine's eastern, northern, and southern frontiers, along with tanks, artillery, and surface-to-air missiles. The foreign ministers of the Group of Seven Nations urged Russia to pull back from the tense border standoff and warned that Russian military aggression against Ukraine would have massive consequences and severe costs. During a two-hour video conference call between President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin on December 7th, Mr. Biden warned that military action by Russia would result in unprecedented and painful economic and other sanctions as he called for de-escalation and diplomacy. With memories of Russia's 2014 invasion of Ukraine and annexation of Crimea, there's palpable fear that another such conflict could result in thousands of civilian deaths, hundreds of thousands of refugees, and destabilization of the region. Your reporter spoke with David Gibbs, professor of history at the University of Arizona, who explains why he believes that NATO's eastward expansion is key to understanding rising tensions and the threat of war along Ukraine's Russia border. I I think the uh, key issue is the uh, status of NATO and the role of NATO in general, and particularly with regard to the Ukraine. Uh, First, let me just begin with the more general issue of NATO. Um, I I think the Soviet Union, to the very end, expected that NATO would simply disappear uh, because, you know, the, the Soviet counterpart to NATO, the Warsaw Pact, effectively went out of business in 1989. And, um, you know, NATO didn't seem to have any purpose anymore since the Cold War, by everybody's agreement, was effectively over by the end of 1989. Yet NATO not only continued, uh, but it really uh, began expanding to an extraordinary degree, incorporating most of the former communist states in Eastern Europe and three former Soviet states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. 
Uh, now, this is a direct violation of a U.S. agreement that they made with the Soviet Union in 1990, which was a solemn promise that was made not once but repeatedly never to expand NATO to the east. The phrase that was used by the U.S. Secretary of State, James Baker, was not one inch eastward. All right. Uh, that was a promise made by the United States so that the Soviet Union, later Russia, would not feel threatened and would um, – specifically, there was a U.S. objective that Germany was reunifying, and the Soviet Union had the ability to block the reunification of the U.N. Security Council. And as an agree part of a comprehensive agreement, the Soviets agreed not to block Germany's reunification, and the U.S. agreed not to expand NATO. It was a quid pro quo. Um, this was made over and over again. There have been a number of recent studies that have looked at the declassified documents and the public statements, uh, and they firmly assert that there was an agreement, a U.S. promise not to expand NATO. And almost immediately, the U.S. began violating that agreement, began doing so quite brazenly. And uh, the Soviets and then the, United, the Russians have always been furious about this and see this as a threat to their security. In terms of the Ukraine, in 2008, there were repeated statements by both U.S. and NATO officials that the Ukraine would be welcomed into NATO. And the Russians insisted that that was simply a bridge too far and they would not allow it. The United States has repeatedly insisted the eventual accession to membership in NATO by the Ukraine is the U.S. objective. The U.S. has never backed down on that. And, um, you know, I think there's a tendency not to realize how provocative this is to, to the Russians in light of, A, the fact that this is a violation of a U.S. agreement, and, B, that this is directly on the southern border of Russia. It's a little bit like how the United States would feel if, let's say, Russia established an alliance with Mexico and began building bases in Mexico. We, everybody knows exactly what the U.S. Would response, response to that would be. That's exactly how the Russians see the possibility of, uh, you know, Ukraine joining NATO. I see this as reckless provocation against Russia. There's really no purpose to it. This has largely been triggered by American insistence on expanding NATO. Professor Gibbs, before we run out of time, I, I did want to ask you about who are the losers and who are the winners in a new Cold War if uh, the Cold War between the United States and Russia should escalate. And I'll just add here that there's been recent reports that uh, Russia and China have signed an agreement for closer military cooperation right. through right. 2025, which right. speaks to some extremely dangerous years ahead if the United States should pursue a Cold War path. Well, you know, I, I, in terms of the losers, I mean, the world is going to see a reduced security based on the uh, resurgence of um, – you know, nuclear tensions and at least the threat of nuclear war. Uh, there's very little discussion of that danger, but it, it, it's, it hasn't really changed all that much in terms of being a danger since the end of the Cold War. And it's, it's really being ramped up right now. Um, and that's extremely dangerous. And so I think the whole world is losing in that sense. More specifically, I think both the American public and the Russian public are going to lose because this will result likely in greater military expenditures at the cost of living standards in both countries. Also, U.S. economic sanctions are mostly going to hurt the people of Russia because economic sanctions almost always have that effect of hurting the population of the target country, usually without producing any real changes in policy. 
Um, as far as the winners, obviously manufacturers of weapons uh, are going to do very well from this and have been doing very well by the ratcheting up of tensions. Uh, they were very concerned with the early 90s. There was a reduction of military spending in the United States, and they've always been trying to correct that. And, um, you know, tensions with Russia certainly help achieve that objective. For what it's worth, um, you know, the, uh, there, there was a big lobbying campaign to help sell the idea of uh, expanding NATO to the American public and also to the European public. And it was funded very heavily by weapons manufacturers because they benefited from these things. So in terms of winners and losers, I would say a very small elite group will benefit and practically everyone else is going to lose from this. That was David Gibbs, professor of history at the University of Arizona and author of First Do No Harm, Humanitarian Intervention and the Destruction of Yugoslavia. Find more perspectives on the danger of war along the Ukraine-Russia border by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On Friday, December 10th, the U.S. won its appeal in London's High Court that brings WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange closer to being extradited to America to stand trial on espionage charges. Judge Timothy Holroyd said Washington had given assurances to the U.K. about Assange's treatment in the U.S. prison system and, if he's convicted, permitting Assange to serve any prison sentence in his home nation of Australia. Judge Holroyd ordered the case to be sent back to a lower court and to Home Secretary Priti Patel on whether Mr. Assange will be extradited to the U.S. Assange's lawyers announced they would appeal the ruling. Assange is wanted by U.S. authorities for WikiLeaks' publication of hundreds of thousands of classified Pentagon documents and diplomatic cables in 2010 and 2011 that exposed U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan and embarrassing diplomatic abuses. Assange faces a sentence of up to 175 years in prison. In June 2012, Assange took refuge in Ecuador's London embassy and remained there for seven years to avoid extradition to Sweden to face sexual assault charges that were later dropped. Assange was evicted from Ecuador's embassy in April 2019 and then arrested by British authorities. Your reporter spoke with Kevin Gostola managing editor of the news website Shadowproof, who examines what options Assange has to appeal London's high court ruling and how the U.S. prosecution of Assange endangers journalism and freedom of the press. Right now, we're at a stage where Julian Assange's legal team has appealed to or plans to appeal, and they have a deadline of December 23rd to appeal to the British Supreme Court. And they'll be challenging this decision. The High Court of Justice basically ruled that the diplomatic assurances or the pledges to make some uh, commitments in order to prevent certain abuse of Julian Assange were to be taken in good faith and that they were um, good enough and that, in fact, it was wrong for the lower court which blocked the extradition to have blocked this extradition request without going to the U.S. government and giving them an opportunity to make these diplomatic assurances. And essentially, I think a really crucial component of this 
that has flown under the radar is that the High Court of Justice prioritized the relationship, the close allied relationship between the United Kingdom and the United States, put that ahead of the interests of Julian Assange and, and whether or not it would be unjust and oppressive for him to be sent to the United States to face trial and be in jail or in prison. And uh, and so, yes, they, they said there's no reason to doubt what the U.S. has said about how they would treat him if he was in U.S. custody. There is talk of a potential route to the European Court of Human Rights. I believe that's still available. And But then there's also the fact that, politically speaking, the Secretary of State in Britain at any time can quash this extradition. So part of our conversation can focus on the legal system, but I also think it's really abundantly clear after what the High Court did that the legal systems may not be what stops this. We're going to need to see pushback from people in either uh, British Parliament are going to have to stop this if they're able to recognize what will happen should Julian Assange be extradited, the president. We're seeing some new pockets of opposition in leadership positions in Australia among parliamentarians. And of course, Julian Assange is an Australian. And uh, we don't have any political opposition to Julian Assange's extradition in Congress, but we're seeing more people mobilized through media outlets. Um, Again, like recently, the Guardian and the Sydney Morning Herald, the Guardians in the UK, the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia, they put out very strong editorials condemning this decision. We're we're seeing that there's a potential that the uproar and this backlash is going to intensify to a point where President Joe Biden's administration may have to deal with it. So I raise all of that to say that you know I'm going to continue to follow this legal case, but there also is a political story here to follow because that could end up playing a role in what happens next. At bottom line, Kevin, what is at stake here? This case, although it involves Julian Assange at center stage, ultimately it's not about him. It's about press freedom, right? Yeah. Now what is at stake here is that we have the U.S. government making an example out of somebody who is a deeply unpopular and reviled figure by a lot of political elites and countries, Western countries primarily, and you know not well-liked in Australia. But we have all these groups who are saying it doesn't really matter what he is and who he is as a person. It doesn't matter what you think you know about Julian Assange. The institution of freedom of the press will be permanently damaged if this case goes forward and he is prosecuted for these alleged offenses under the Espionage Act. And uh, I, I think we're going to start to see the noise get louder and louder. The calls get louder and louder. The demands are probably going to increase. We saw a couple MSNB. Uh, so Ayman Mahaldeen has a show on MSNBC. I think it's on Peacock. And then uh, Mehdi Hassan has a show. I believe it's also on Peacock as well, if unless he has a weekend program. Uh, but you know they were talking to their liberal and democratic audiences and trying to communicate to them why they need to care. Um, and I, I, I do believe slowly but surely more people are going to begin to wake up to this. The high court decision really made this an imminent 
kind of a uh, case that it's going to be sooner than later that Julian Assange may arrive in the United States. And there's a short amount of time to stop that from happening. And I think that it's in the interests of press freedom and the larger values of democracy to stop it from happening. That was Kevin Gostola, managing editor of the news website Shadowproof.com and producer and co-host of the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. Find more analysis and commentary on the consequences of Washington's prosecution of Assange for press freedom by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In 1993, Kennery Webb traveled to Borneo for the first time, on a path to becoming a primatologist. What she learned there changed her career trajectory and her life. When she learned that local residents were cutting down trees in the rainforest to earn money specifically to pay for medical care, she decided to enroll in medical school, become a doctor, and set up a primary care health center at the edge of one of Indonesia's biodiverse national parks. People paid for care in kind, with seedlings, manure for organic farming, or with handicrafts. Local people planted seedlings bought with funds contributed by supporters from around the world as a thank you to them for preserving the forest. The core principles of the organization she founded, Health in Harmony, are radical listening, rainforest community expertise, holistic and interdependent solutions, a decolonizing mindset, bridging global resources, and data-driven scale. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Webb about her new memoir, titled Guardians of the Trees, a journey of hope through healing the planet, and her organization's ongoing efforts to preserve rainforests around the world, including their work in Madagascar and Brazil. What we do is we listen to rainforest communities, we call it radical listening, and we implement precisely the solutions that they determine that they would need for protecting forests and thriving more themselves. This is really a planetary health approach. And I, I began to see this interconnection between human health and environmental health when I spent a year in the rainforest in Borneo studying orangutans as an undergraduate. And there discovered that people were logging to pay for healthcare. And that truth just shocked the core of my being, that people really had no choice, that they were in a catch-22, that they really loved the forest, they recognized that the forest was essential for their current well-being and their future well-being. But when someone in your family needs a C-section or your child is extremely sick, you will do whatever it takes to get the cash to pay for healthcare, including destroy the future for that child and make your own future less healthy. At that time, I mean, the, even the concept of planetary health was didn't really exist. And I didn't really hear people talking about how we needed to marry both human health and environmental health. But the communities where I was working understood this without question right? It was completely and totally obvious to them. 
So I ended up going to medical school and went back to work together with these communities to work towards a healthy planet for all of us. So it was right on the edge of the national park. There's a population of about 120,000 people who live around this national park. The carbon in that forest alone, which is not the only value of rainforests, you know, half the world's biodiversity, very important for water cycling, et cetera. But the carbon alone in that forest is equal to 14 years of carbon emissions from San Francisco. So if you look at the course of our program, over the first 10 years, there was a 90% drop in logging households. Monica Nirmala, who's the executive director of our program, this staff's 100% Indonesian of our program there. She now actually works at the Ministry of Health, but she invented the solution for these final loggers in coordination with the community. And what they do is called the chainsaw buyback program. So they would give their chainsaw, we would buy it from them. We're now making like sculptures made from these chainsaws. And then we would also contribute a portion of money towards more like angel investing, which is to say if their business fails, then we also lost the money. But uh, if it was successful, they would slowly pay back the money and we could use it to buy more chainsaws. So that's just a small example of how people moved from destructive practices towards thriving practices. Kennery Webb, what we always hear about is the wholesale clear-cutting of the rainforest in Borneo to create gigantic palm oil plantations. I wasn't aware that so much of the forest is logged by individual local residents, but doesn't the multinational corporate destruction have the greatest impact on the ecosystem and the humans who are part of it? It's more, but it's not actually dramatically more. The data is not great because it's hard to know exactly what the causes are on the ground in every single space. But 68% of the loss of carbon in the tropics is actually from degradation. And a lot of that is logging. Not all of it. You know, some of it is other causes of the loss of forest and some of it is edge effects where land has been cleared but it's not insignificant. And, and of course, community is also clear for us as well. So, but the more we know ecosystems, the more we love them, the better we are at protecting them. You know, and of course, there's all the commodity-driven destruction of the forest as well. And I'm so grateful that there are lots of organizations that work on, on that side. I really believe there must be a two-pronged approach. And of course, then the other thing is just to recognize is that indigenous communities, particularly in the Amazon, are by far the best protectors of the forest and, and many traditional communities as well. So thanking them for what they are doing for the planet is also really critical. You know, we tend to forget how interrelated the world is, but the forests in actually across the tropics create rain in the northern hemisphere. That was Kennery Webb founder of the group Health and Harmony, which is now organizing more ways people around the world can help protect rainforests through a partnering project called Rainforest Exchange. Learn more about the project by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPPM in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, KRFY in Sandpoint, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.